Blog Talk Radio. Good evening once again. We are here, Madam Perry Salon, the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration. But that's not what we're here to talk about. Hey, listen, um, we had so much fun last night with uh, Jim Musgrave. Fun last week with Timon and Langan, Adrian Ash, and, uh, and then come out tomorrow night we have a poet. But tonight I have a very special guest, and uh, we'll be back with her in just one minute because you know who hasn't been here yet, and that is my, um, well, my doorman. So let me let him do his job. I don't want anyone to be, uh, to feel not needed. General Quarters, Security Condition 3. Thank you. Security 3, sir. General Quarters 3, Intruder Alert. GQ 3, Intruder Alert. And, of course, you know it's not really an intruder. It's me, but he does a great job, and I love him. I'm so proud of him. Say, listen, you know I told you that... This is going to be a very special night, and if you've followed any of my social media, you're already checking on that, and you've seen it. Tonight's guest, uh, she's actually, I think of her as a filmmaker as well as an author and food historian. Um, I don't even know where to begin this time, but I can tell you this. Uh, She's the author of Cuisine and Culture, A History of Food and People, which is used to teach food history in culinary schools throughout the U.S. and Canada. The first edition won the Grammont Award for Best Culinary History Book in in English. Um, You've seen this woman on television, on the radio. She's been on TV on Bizarre Foods, uh, specifically... On the show, on the uh, episodes featuring Halloween and Aphrodisiacs, on NPR, the BBC, um, she's currently writing food and film from Prohibition to James Bond. And let me see. Oh, she's also quite. Um, she's taught the history of chocolate at UCLA Extension. But you know what? We're here tonight to talk about her current book, Baking Powder Wars: The Cutthroat food fight that revolutionized cooking. Um, now, <laughs> well, wait a minute. She she left again, so I'm not sure what happened. She was here. Maybe I didn't have her, um, the line I'm going to call her back into the studio, but you know what? I'm happy to tell you that, um, yeah, she's on the east, on the west coast, the west coast. It's a little bit of a different vibe. So, anyway, um, like I said, the story has everything. It's got Jesse James, the Klan, the Mafia, um, chocolate chip cookies, how donuts were started, as well as a recipe for 400 large or 500 small donuts. And, of course, I'm talking about 
Baking Powder Wars author Linda Civitello. Linda, welcome to Madam Perry's Salon. Well, thank you very much. I am happy to be here. I am thrilled to have you here. And uh, how are things on the West Coast? How's your weather? Have you baked anything today? Uh, I did, actually, and I've been using heirloom flour a lot. I made some uh, caramel almond biscotti to go with my cappuccino Mm. ice cream. And the weather here is, I don't know, it's 78 or 80 or so. It's, you know, T-shirt and shorts weather. Sorry. <laughs> okay, that's all I want to hear about that. Okay, I'll just I'll just dream on about the caramel biscotti and the uh, cappuccino ice cream. Listen, I am I am loving your book, Baking Powder Wars, uh, Cutthroat History, or the Cutthroat Food Fight that Revolutionized Cooking. You know, it's the kind of thing that when I first saw the book in the description, as like I was thinking, oh, Baking Powder Wars. And but then because of, I think it was what bullet holes in the in the can on the cover, and I thought, well, let me check this out and read about it. Who knew? Who knew this was such a wild history? And it also goes to prove there is absolutely nothing new under the sun as far as dirty dealing and and backstabbing and business to get ahead. True. Anybody it's true. That thinks, I, was, I was stunned. Go ahead. No. Um, so. Tell me, what brought you uh, to write this book and just to, I, mean, I know you're a food historian, but to study uh, the history of baking powder and its effect well, on I culture started, in particular? Well, I wanted, I wanted to do breakfast. I'd been researching breakfast for a, a while, and I mean, 10 or 15 years ago, I was giving talks on how dessert became breakfast which the rest of the world finally caught up with me and went, oh, yeah, we're having dessert for breakfast. But I, I saw that years and years ago. So I was writing about breakfast. And, you know, of course, and then I thought I'm going to deconstruct it. I'm going to look at the ingredients. It's, I'm going to look at, you know, what goes into pancakes, what goes into waffles. So it's like what's happened to flour? It's got refined and white. What's happened to sugar? It's got refined and white. You know, eggs have gotten bigger. Um, you know, bacon, just what is, you know, like a lumberjack breakfast. So I was looking at all kinds of breakfast things, and I thought, wow, this is just like a ginormous topic. I mean, it's so huge. So let me start with something small, which would be like, you know, what leavens everything, because that's, you know, I'm looking at it and going, oh, the common denominator in the muffins, in the rolls, in the pancakes, in the waffles, in the biscuits, it's baking powder. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll put like a paragraph or so about baking powder because, you know, who thinks about baking powder? And, you know, it's it's like a nothing, you know, it's just a non-ingredient. Nobody thinks about it. Mm-hmm. So I figured I'd find enough for, you know, a paragraph, two paragraphs, and I'd say, yeah, and, like, and of course, there's baking powder. And it was like, are you kidding me when I started finding thousands and <laughs> thousands of pages and court cases going up to the United States Supreme Court and every state legislature and, you know, chambers of Congress and repeated over the years, you know, congressional hearings and state health boards and people going to jail over baking powder and newspaper <laughs> articles and and I just, I couldn't believe it. But as a, as a historian, I went, oh, this is the mother load. Oh, yeah. You know, this is like the <laughs> dream of this. Once in a lifetime, you go, are you kidding? How, how could, have we forgotten this? 
how did this disappear? And this is what I love as a historian, that when you get into something and you go, I, this is insane. And, you know, we forget. Um, you know, because when I taught history, I'd have students do a history of their families. We really don't know anything past like our grandparents' generation. Some people, maybe great-grandparents, and, you know, some families have done genealogy, but it's the same with history. We just don't know. And this all happened uh, around 1900 and then to the, the Depression. But, I mean, for 100, and, 100 years, people were fighting over baking powder and saying, I'm going to, you know, run you out of business if it takes my fortune or my life. I mean, it was that intense. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it did, didn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, people just, you know, people did go bankrupt, people, you know, and when they went and testified, and, and then they got they got really dirty trying to drive each other out of business, so, and there was a lot of money, a lot of money in baking powder, so you had millions and millions of dollars there to uh, do dirty deeds with. Mm. You know, one of the first things I remember, I think in the in the it might have been in the first chapter of the book, and it talks about how um, there were a few cooking cookbooks uh, because I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this is, um, at that time, it was one of the few respectable ways for a woman to earn money. I think specifically well, if she was widowed or something. Women ran, they did, they ran boarding houses, you know, and they've always been connected to food, you know, you could take in laundry, and then when factories started to come along, but, you know, if you had a good, you know, table, if you could provide good food, you could certainly charge more money, and a lot of the women who wrote cookbooks early on were what historians call women on the margins. These are women who didn't have husbands or fathers or, you know, families. These are women who had to support themselves. Uh, for instance, Catherine Beecher was engaged and her fiancé died at sea and she never married. So, you know, she spent the rest of her life doing domestic science, as it was called then. And mm-hmm. uh, Amelia Simmons, the first American cookbook, she says, I'm an orphan. I'm an American orphan. But women can be respectable and earn a living and support themselves by cooking, and I will tell you how in this book. So, yes, I mean, because, you know, you didn't go outside the home if you were a woman. The first girls who went outside the home were the daughters of Yankee farmers because the land was played out, and in the, the first industrial revolution in America, they went to work in the textile factories in Massachusetts, um, and, you know, because women were also connected with spinning and weaving and textiles. So those were the, it was the three things you did as a woman in the 18th century and well into the 19th were you had children, you provided food for your family, and you provided clothing for your family. And you see this like in Paul Revere's house. If you go into his historic home, you'll see mm-hmm. the, at the hearth, there's the hearth, a big fireplace because that's where the cooking went on, and next to it is the spinning wheel and the cradle. And that was your life. <laughs> that was, yes. Oh, listen, by the way, if you're listening to us live tonight, and this is Tuesday night, uh, and I'm talking with Linda Civitello about her book, The Baking Powder Wars, uh, 
you can give us a call. You can call and talk to Linda. Uh, the number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. And uh, Linda would love to talk to you. So would I. And Linda, mm-hmm. we do have a caller oh, coming yeah. in here. Looks like it could Ooh. be. I'm, I may be wrong, but could be from, uh, I don't know, is this from Louisiana? Hi, welcome to Madam Perry's Salon. I'm here with Linda Civitella. Yeah. Yes, hi. Hello. I need uh, two Supreme pizzas. Um, one with <laughs> one no cheese on it. One with no cheese, please. Uh, I, I can't handle the cheese. And uh, like, you want a baking, you want a baking powder beer? base. If you want a baking powder base, <laughs> you know we can talk about that. You know, but otherwise, that's the yeast dough. And I'm sorry, that is the food of my people. I'm an Italian American, but uh, you know. <laughs> What else can anything else we can help you with here? No, I'm sorry. I don't have nothing with you. Okay. Linda, this is suspense author. I recognize this voice. This is the suspense author Carrie Dunn calling from uh Baton, Baton Rouge or New Orleans. Carrie. And uh I'm I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to mention that. Where where are you calling where are you where are you calling from? New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh, okay. I'm going to be speaking there in March at a conference on chemistry and food. Really? So, yeah. Cool. I'm going to be talking about um, the evolution of flour and also uh, things that have changed changed our eating habits drastically, like uh, freezing the cold chain and, uh, you know, some other things. So, because we've, we've gone from uh, – pretty much medieval theory in the beginning mm-hmm. until about 1848 to molecular gastronomy in, a, in about 130 years or so. So we're moving at the speed of light. And baking powder was one of those things that has completely changed everything the way we, we eat. It has made things faster, cheaper, and easier. And that, that's what Americans have been looking for. And there it is in baking powder, and it also resulted in America's bread, which is the baking powder biscuit, which is a soft, crustless bread. Mm-hmm. And there you go, and it's very versatile. You can dress it up, dress it down, you can go savory, you can go sweet. And when you look at what it took to make bread in the beginning of the 19th century, in the 18th century, where people were eating about a pound of bread per person per day, so bread is the mainstay. It's not, would you like some bread with that? It's, do you want something to go with the bread? And sometimes all you had to go with that bread was tea, maybe butter and jam. And, I mean, mm. it took you all day to bake this. You're baking 25, 30 pounds of flour and plus gallons of water and homemade yeast. And then that bread's going to last you for a week. So let me ask you this. Do you want that bread that's a week old or do you want baking powder biscuits hot out of the oven? And I'll take a mine out of the oven. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might, I, find, I think much much more highly of you now for your answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm from the south. You can give me hot biscuits any any time of day. I'm okay with that. Uh, uh-huh. Would you say your book? Because I, I was reading the description, and I'm sorry I wasn't familiar with your work, but reading your description uh, of what this book entails and everything, is it more of a historical or scientific or sociological kind of way that uh, yes yes all three <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> covers it covers a lot of turf because i start 
the first chapter is his bread before baking powder, you know, what it was mm-hmm. like, the importance of bread in, in British culture and American culture. And, and again, where women had to make their own yeast. Commercial yeast was not widely available in the United States until the Fleischmann brothers brought it over from Vienna in 1876 at the Philadelphia Exposition, the Centennial, our, you know, America's 100th birthday party. Um, so, yes, it's all of those things. It's about what these women's lives were like and why they were looking, why they were experimenting. I mean, they were these are desperate people. You look at what they're putting in the food to try to get it to leaven, and somebody has the bright idea, you know, and she's whoever she is. is we don't know her name, but, you know, people had smelling salts in their house in their houses and you know you look at this and somebody must have said well if this can revive you and get you up it's gonna get my pancakes up too so they started putting (laughs) smelling salts smelling salts in the food volatile oh yeah because it's got ammonia in it It, you know and in england they were using hydrochloric acid i mean this is how much these people want a shortcut oh yeah oh yeah i mean that's why i'm looking at this so, yes, um, the science part is, is there. And then also, the, you know, cream of tartar, um, sodium aluminum sulfate, phosphates, I mean, just all these different formulas and ways of experimenting to try to get a leavening in there. And then they get cream of tartar in baking soda, but it, it won't work with, um, you know, some, some citrus things. You know, let me, count, you know, reacts badly with acid. Some things, the very first thing they tried was ashes, ashes. Um, you know, and before you, you go, you know, it's like, what do you mean ashes? Um, it's ashes have been used like lye in lutefisk and other places. So uh, they're using they ashes. They use lye to make bread? Yep. Well, it was called pearl ash, which was super refined ashes. And that's actually in the first chapter. That's the very first patent that was ever issued in the United States was for pearl ash, was for this super refined ash. Well, it was used for other things, too, like making glass and, you know, and things. But um, um, it's just uh, amazing. But that, the big drawback with that was anything you use that in, if you didn't mix it properly, it would leave flex. It would leave very unattractive and bad tasting flex. And also the minute Ooh. the minute it came in contact with liquid, you had to put it in the oven. So if you, you know, like said, Oh, I want to put it in another pan or oh I wanna it's like ant too late, you know, it's like the thing has fallen. And the the biggest drawback on pearl ash, this ash based leavener, and it says this in one of the cookbooks, is if you combine this with water, pearl ash with water and it falls on the floor. Some of it spills on the floor. Do not leave it any length of time, for it will strip the paint off the floorboards. One of my but you're going to eat it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead yeah. and eat it, Hardy. Yeah, just shout out on and the bread. Thinking... Yes. So, yes, it's science. It's, you know, it's a history of business. It's a history of cookbooks. Because I wanted to trace what, how this spread, because this baking powder is technology. It's new technology. How does it spread? How do people learn to use it? You know, now it's like you want to know something, you go on the Internet. Well, back then, women were writing. There was tremendous literacy among women, especially in the Northeast. By 1840, almost 
there was almost 100% literacy among women in the Northeast. So they're writing cookbooks. They're sending, you know, they're making diaries. They're trading recipes. They're reading cookbooks, and they're doing all this. And you see it spreading into the Midwest. Um, In the South, a lot of it was still beaten biscuits because, and those were always a sign of hospitality. Um, Very often throughout history, things that were considered signs of hospitality meant, you know, like my people of color who are making this food are better than your people in the kitchen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so oh. beat, beaten biscuits, you know, five, beat those 500 times with an ax handle. You had to beat this for like an hour. And, oh, you know, this was, it was slave labor. It was slave labor that was doing this. So women wow. in the north, oh, no, just so, like, I want a shortcut. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just what, a, we waiting time for you minute. to breathe. What are we doing here? Yes, yes, yes. You know, Linda, okay. I would just pay just for you to do state. You should just do stand up. You should just be, you know, at yeah. Carnegie Hall. You don't need to. You don't need you know. to nine one one yourself or anything, do you? Uh, no, <laughs> you don't need to nine one one yourself. No, okay. I hope not. I hope not. Okay, but, but also I want to say. Um, we got another caller coming in, so stay with me just for a second. Oh my God, uh, if you want to talk, I'm so excited. I have, Girl? I have to go now. What? No. <laughs> no. 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 Other caller. Linda. Other okay, No. No. Yes. If you want to talk to Linda Civitello here, uh, it's six four six seven one six nine nine two two, and I'm gonna. Uh, I think this is also somebody who's rather familiar, uh, maybe in Madame Perry's salon, Carrie. I'm just thinking about beating biscuits, beating the biscuits with an axe handle five hundred times. Hi, welcome to Madame Perry's salon. I'm here with Linda Civitello talking about baking powder wars. You know, I have heard Hello. the term butter my butt and call me a biscuit, but beaten biscuits for <laughs> 500 times? Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, well, they finally they finally created a machine to do that around 1900 because uh, you had to beat the biscuits until the dough blistered. This was how you incorporated air into the dough to leaven it. So... Uh, finally, yes, a machine around 1900, but you know, still you had to crank it like crazy, and it, it looks sort of like an Italian pasta machine, if you know what that looks like. It's a little crank mm-hmm. and a couple, couple of yeah. rollers. Um, yeah, so it's difficult incorporating air into things to leaven them because traditionally you did this, you made a sponge, okay, with those egg whites or. Um, you know, like beat the the whole egg, the yolk and the ribbon, the yolk and the white and the sugar until you get a ribbon. You know, that's 10 Mm -hmm. minutes on an electric, with an electric stand mixer. So you've got recipes that say beat the eggs for an hour or you separate the whites from the yolks and you beat the whites. And, of course, the difficulty there is if you get any little teeny tiny itsy bitsy bit of yolk or any kind of fat, or the beaters aren't completely clean, the whites will just sit there and look at you and go, not now, ha, 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 you know. And it's just, we've all had that happen. It's like, what got in there? I hate these egg whites. So Oh, and that's how it. you end up with a sponge cake pan, square pancake on the bottom yes, of the oven. With with a hole in the hood, which is a big crater in the middle. That's a crater cake, your, your you know, average crater cake. Yes, that's what that is about. So baking yep. powder, on the other hand, Baking powder is foolproof. Baking powder doesn't care if it's hot or it's cold or it's wet or it's dry or you did this a million times or you've never baked anything before in your life. It's like, all right, let me add it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise it. I'm going to make it puff up. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 
you know, it's like a dog. It's like a puppy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. So, um, yeah, that's what baking powder does, and I love it. <laughs> All right, you know, don't use oh, it against dear God. me. Don't use it against me. No, but really, you look at it. cooking is a miracle. Cook, chemistry is a miracle. Every time you do something in the kitchen, you transform these ingredients into some other thing and it's amazing to watch it leaven you know it's like nice to watch yeast puff up too but that takes a long time so oh yeah anyway mm-hmm. so this this caller yeah. is actually becky kyle she's an author and editor linda and i don't i've never Hi, seen becky. or heard her talk about eating a biscuit but <laughs> so well, you know, you never re- they say you never really know somebody, right? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> not until you, I always say, you know, not, you, know, you can work cheek by jowl with somebody, but until you've eaten a biscuit next to them with them or seen their technique, you don't know them. You just think you do. We've got another caller joining the party here with Becky and Carrie and Linda Civitello. Linda, can hey, you Becky, handle one more? Hey. Hello. That's Carrie. Oh, somebody Carrie, said something, yeah, right? saying hello. <laughs> oh, hey. All right. Welcome to Matter Perry Salon. We're talking about the Hello, Salon. Come on in and tell us who you are. Hi. Uh, well, who is this? Hi there. Uh, this is Peter G., uh, the animator and the food nut, who's, who you've had on the show a few times before. Oh, well, hi, Peter. G., yes. <laughs> hi there. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I was calling in especially because I'm listening to the interview, and it's like uh, she's describing uh, cooking as chemistry. It's like, well, yeah, I've been, I've been saying that for years. Yes, yeah, but a lot of well, people still don't, still don't get it. When Harold McGee wrote the first edition of on cooking and chemistry in 1984, he had to explain. I think it was 84 the connection between cooking and chemistry. And when he updated it in, I think it was 2004, he no longer had to have that section in the book. But you know, people really did not understand this at all. They don't oh, think about pe- science. There, Every time I cook, to- I call it a science experiment. <laughs> My husband would agree. Well, I mean, there's people today who still don't get it. I mean, I have a I have a friend who wants to retire and move to Florida. He says he wants to open a, a pizza parlor there that actually makes good pizza because he's never had good pizza in Florida. And I kept telling him, it's like, well, you're never going to make good pizza because pizza is all about the bread. If the bread doesn't taste good, the pizza doesn't taste good. And the right. water in Florida is simply different from the water in Chicago or New York or any of the of the yep. of the other pizza it's capitals. Terroir, where wherever right. you go, it's terroir. Um, mm. And you know, every good pastry chef has a filtration system. There are special yeah. filtration system to mm-hmm. take the, yeah. the the flavors of you know because all the water has been treated, um, and some of it is the yeast. And you know, any time you're dealing with yeast, you have the variables of weather and humidity and the skill of the cook. You know, mm-hmm. not just the flour. You can import that flour from Italy. You can get a water filter. The yeast, and depending on how humid it is, how not humid, um, how you know what whether it's hot or whether it's cold, and, and these are variables that baking powder removes, absolutely removes from baking. That's it. It's the chemical leavener, and it doesn't care. 
It's, mm-hmm. it's going to leaven no matter what. I had a cat. So, I had looks- bread fall because I had a cat that jumped on the refrigerator and caused the yeast that was just rising to just go. Yeah, you scared it- the yeast. You you can't scare baking powder. There you go. Yeah. Baking powder is very tough. It won't scare. The only thing you can do that would screw up baking powder would be to put a damp spoon in the in the can. And they had to the you know, baking powder manufacturers made issued proprietary cookbooks. And they and then Fannie Farmer came along in the 1890s, and they all said, you know, do not put a damp spoon. You know, like don't measure water or milk or vanilla or something, and then put that spoon in the baking powder can because it does react. And I know you're dying. You're dying to ask me, and all the people who haven't called in yet, you're all dying to say, Linda, what is exactly, what exactly is that double-acting baking powder? What does that mean, Linda? Tell me, tell me. Okay, do you want me what to tell it? you? What is it? <laughs> yes. I, I thought it was a double-agent baking powder, but go ahead. It, it's, it's a marketing ploy. You know, it's of like, course it is. you know, when, when they say that's like olive oil, now gluten-free, um, you know, so it's double acting is, it's, I mean, it's true. And it's, there are two different leavening agents in your baking powder and they are held together with corn starch, which was a cutting edge product when baking powder was first marketed in the 1850s um, and 60s. You know, we think now, I mean, there is nothing more kind of mundane than cornstarch, but back then it wasn't an obvious choice to work in this, um, and that came a Harvard professor, a chemistry professor came up with that. So in the 1920s, one of the baking powder companies decides it's going to promote itself as double-acting. The first action is when the baking soda hits the liquid. And that, you know, you've done a, you know, a third-grade science experiment where you take a teaspoon of baking soda and you put it in some water and you watch it fizz up or, you know, something. And you can mm-hmm. see that in the bowl. That's the first action. The second action is when it hits the heat. That's the the acid ingredient, whether it's the phosphate, the sodium aluminum, you know, whatever that is. It used to be the cream of, uh, well, the cream of tartar had, this goes to the, the big rivalry and the baking powder wars because royal baking powder only was only single acting. It only reacted with the liquid. So here comes its competition, and it's like they cannot counter this. This is a scientific fact, and you can't counter it. Our baking powder acts twice, and yours only acts once, and also ours costs less than, less than yours, and you have to use less of ours than of yours. And that's why royal baking powder is, is gone now. It's, and what is available in the United States is in the Hispanic communities, and it's the same formula as all the other baking powders, or else you could not have consistency in cookbooks and recipes. And there was not consistency in the joy of cooking until 1995. Whoa. So these wars went on a long time because before that, like there were pages and pages in joy of cooking. And even in the 1940s and into the 50s, I believe, they, she had parallel recipes in the joy of cooking. If you're using this kind of baking powder, you use 
this much of it. And if you use and you add it at this point, if you're using that kind of baking powder, you add it at that point and you use this much. And anybody who can read a recipe is looking at the joy of cooking going, how come I have to use twice as much of this baking powder? <laughs> and it costs more already. Mm. So uh, Rombauer, Rombauer became an inadvertent advertiser for all the baking powders that were not royal just because she had to explain this and because it became a national, you know, a huge hit in the national cookbook. So does that answer your question about double acting? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. But there's more questions. There are more questions, Linda. You know, I have been telling everybody that this book has got everything. It's got, you know, mystery, intrigue, of course, desserts, donuts, how they were started, everything. <laughs> but I said it's got spies. I mean, you know, like um, the the royal company had uh, spies working in the Calumet company that were, yeah, working there as employees. It's got bribery up into the highest government level things that went to the Supreme Court. It has Jesse James, the mafia, the Klan. <laughs> Tell us, how did a little simple white powder that wasn't that didn't just go straight up somebody's nose just be so, so well, gangster? There you go. When you're talking about white powders, because there are almost parallels with the drug industry, and as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, well, no, around 1900, nothing was illegal. Government did not consider that it was its business to tell you what to eat or what to drink or what to put in your foods. And then that got abused. So the government said, no, you can't put coal tars, you know, you know some of these things that are toxic. Um, Thank you, Upton Sinclair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the jungle. But see, now everybody goes, oh, yeah, everybody knows about the jungle and mm-hmm. the meatpacking industry in Chicago in 1905 and 1906 and the Pure Food and Drug Act. But – way before meat, the meat industry was exposed as this horror show, the bread, commercial bread baking was exposed in the 1880s and 1890s. There was a huge case that went up to the Supreme Court called Lochner versus New York, where you had what were called the basement bakers. These guys are working in tenement basements in New York, and they, they're practically living there because making bread is so time-consuming. And when it's hot, I mean, there's almost no ventilation. They're stripped to the waist. They're carrying the bread around by hugging it to their sweaty torsos. Um, yeah. There, yeah there's, there, there is no, you know, the floors in many cases were just dirt, uh, you know. And when the law finally got passed, it said, and by the way, you can't have any animals in a bakery except for cats. Which means if you got cats, you got what? (laughs) You got rats. You got you got vermin. You got stuff. So anyway, so yes, but see, before meat, there was bread. Um, yeah, and all kinds of um, arguments were made, like, well, why should the government? make my baking powder illegal because this is what happened. One of the baking powder companies bribed a state legislature for six years to keep its, all of its competitors' products off the shelf. We're talking about a million dollars worth of food, you know, of, of baking powder off the shelves, and that's a million dollars in 1900. Yeah, that was a, yeah that was a lot of money back then. 
drove all kinds of people out of business. Um, and, and people were saying, why can't I have the baking powder that I want, that I've been using, that works for me? Uh, and the argue, one of the arguments they said, they said, you know, a lot of people like to shoot themselves up with morphine, and they sell these cute little hypodermic kits so that people can do that. So why can't I have the baking powder I want? Yes. So, yes. <laughs> baking powder. Well, that's an impressive other, argument. The other white, yeah, the other white powder. Um, so, yeah, I mean, because what we're talking about here is government regulation. And, you know, what is the role of the government in, in regulating and food? And, you know, now, I mean, you know, what we're seeing now is, um, you know, sugar and soft drinks, pate, uh, all kinds of of things uh, being regulated by the government. So when the baking powder wars began, there was no regulation. There was no regulation of advertising. So you could make the most fantastic claims. And advertising came out of all that, um, you know, those snake oil salesmen and the health cures, you know. It's like, ah, yes, our elixir, two teaspoons a day will cure, you know, insomnia and if you sleep too much, <laughs> you know, you look at them, mm-hmm. they're making absolutely contradictory claims. It's like, are you nervous or are you tired? Our elixir will cure all of that. And the reason it did, because some of that stuff was 25% alcohol, take four times a day. Okay. Yeah. You know, you mm-hmm. will feel better. I mean, going back to the Middle uh-huh. Ages when I thought sugar could cure toothaches. Doctors prescribed sugar for toothaches in the Middle Ages. So, you know, we get all these things coming in, and people will, you know, make what they what they wish of things and then and, and do things with them. So, But with baking powder, what you're doing is pancakes, waffles, donuts. We reinvented donuts. Baking powder reinvented donuts. There are two different kinds of donuts. One is the puffy yeast donut, the yeast-risen one that's filled with the jelly that's nice and you know light and puffy. The other mm-hmm. types of donuts, like the buttermilk bars, the maple bars, those are called cake donuts, and they are made with baking powder. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we revolutionized you know, donuts. We reinvented pancakes. We like our food puffy and light. And this is why baking powder is the reason that the expression flat as a pancake has no meaning for Americans. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's not a crepe. A crepe is flat. And American pancakes are puffy. So mm-hmm. there you go. I love pancakes. Don't tell anybody. All right. Well, well we couldn't have figured that one out. <laughs> well, let's get into the to the dirt and the crime of all this now because I was just amazing. I love by the way, Carrie, you're gonna love this too and and uh well actually Becky and, and also Peter. She has uh uh Linda has a great turn of phrase. And here's this one where um and like in this one section where uh Royal has um hired detectives to go in and be employees as I was saying before in Calumet and then trying to, you know, um Use it to, uh, you know, ruin their business, and then and then there's a, a FTC suit, and then Calumet accuses Royal of industrial espionage, and goes on. I won't tell you what happens next, but then it says, I love this expression, this sentence. It says, uh, Royal's 
trial brief was an exercise in chutzpah, like the man who kills his parents and then begs for mercy because he's an orphan. <laughs> Royal claimed Allen was so dangerous that the state had passed legislation to protect the public from it. Then they cited the law that they had bought, the law that they had purchased themselves with bribery. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, the nerve. <laughs> Well, it was a precedent, and that was what they intended to do. We're going to broaden mm-hmm. this one state legislature to make our yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I think they're you know they're better at covering it up, but um, yeah, I have, you know it's like set a precedent, bribe one state to pass a law, and do it under the guise of public health. We're mm-hmm. doing this is enlightened public policy. We're doing it because we're concerned about the health of our citizens. And Royal's strategy there was to have this groundswell, this grassroots movement across the United States and, and pass this law in every as many states as possible so that when it got time for the pure food and drug law at the federal level, Royal planned to go in and say, look, X number of states have already passed laws making all of our competitors' baking powders illegal, so the federal law should make them illegal too. And so that's why this was a really a fight for survival, a fight to the death, because the royal competition, which was a lot of mom-and-pop baking powder companies, because at that time there were about 534 baking powder companies in the United States, because you could order these you know, various components of it, the cornstarch, mix it up in the back of your little general store, your mom and pop store, slap your own proprietary label on a can, and you've got your own brand of baking powder. But Royal wanted all of these people gone and, and did their absolute best to make that happen. But it didn't. It did not happen. You know, what, what really um, changed the market was the Depression in the 1930s. So yeah, that was another another war, a price war. So you have advertising war. You have the legislative wars. You have price wars. You have cookbook wars. You have women getting very, very vociferous about this, like, and don't use that brand of baking powder, or my family has always eaten this brand of baking powder. And then, you know, some of the baking powder uh, businessmen getting very angry. And one of them, Davis Baking Powder, and he's from Jersey, you know, goes into one of these uh, congressional hearings and, and he's like keeping his temper and he's answering all the questions. And finally he says, you people know as much about baking powder as a cow knows about algebra. And it's like, this is not the way to get Congress on your side, you know? <laughs> so. it, is, it is amazing to me how well you know your subject. It's, I'm just sitting here kind of flabbergasted. It's, it's oh. pretty amazing. Well, I mean, I lived with it for a long time, and, you know, and I keep seeing baking powder in my kitchen. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It is. It is. I mean, you know, anytime a cake, you know, cakes, um, crawlers, just so many things, again, you know, made with baking powder. And we don't think about it enough. We just don't think about it enough. No. it's So I'm doing all the thinking about baking powder for you. So anyway. Oh, so is that thank another you. caller? I... Was that and another no, caller? That's no. some, that's... 
No, that's one of you guys somewhere. So uh, sorry, that was that was, that, that was me. That was uh, I'm sorry. The phone. Uh, I I have a tendency to get telemarketers that will call three at a time, so they will jam up both of the sidelines, and if one of and if one of the lines gets clear, it jumps right back on again. So every time it rings, I'm literally <laughs> okay. hit slamming multiple buttons. I apologize for that. Whoa. That's Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm sorry I had to sign off, but it's been a pleasure and listening to you and everything tonight. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'm going to listen to the rest of it while I cook dinner here, but uh, fascinating. Thank what are you, you making? All right, thanks lightning. for calling. Yes. What are you uh, making, Harry? Something quick on the stove. Nothing with baking powder in it, though, surprisingly. I didn't want any ashes in my chicken. But, uh, <laughs> no. no. Well. <laughs> well, enjoy your dinner. Well, thank you, and it was All a right, pleasure listening calling. to you and talking to you. Y'all have thank a good you. night, everybody. Thank you. Oh, you All right, thanks, Bye-bye. Harry. My mother would only let us buy Calumet baking powder. I don't know why. I mean, I I said, well, here's this stuff called Clabber Girl, which sounds kind of gross because isn't Clabbered things bad? And she's like, you don't buy it. No, 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 no. No, Clabber, Clabber, if something is Clabber, that's when you get before milk used to be ultra pasteurized and processed and everything um mm-hmm. it would it would get into a beautiful thick ferment when it started to go bad and i remember when as a kid we got cream from our local dairy and when the cream started to thicken it and mm-hmm. become sour that's mm-hmm. what we used in our pancakes in addition to baking, I mean, that made a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Clabber Girl baking powder was originally called Clabber, the idea being that the baking powder would do the kind of leavening that you got from naturally fermented milk, and then they changed the name in 1923 to comply with the FTC just just to make sure that there was no mistake. And they had had a, a pretty young girl on the label, and that's who did the cooking and still does mm-hmm. in homes very often is the teenage daughter. And, you know, people would come in, customers would come in and they say, oh, you know, give me that, that baking powder with the clabber girl, the clabber girl mm-hmm. one. And they said, yeah, that's it. Here, we're just going to call it that. You know, you look at the labels, and I do go into the sort of art history label colors, schemes and things. They're red, they're orange, they're bright, they're, you know, they've got a, um, a chef, they've got this, they've got that, and it's like, and here's Clabber Girl, and it's white and gray, and it looks sort of like a charcoal sketch, and it's, you know, and she's from the mm-hmm. 1920s, and they haven't changed her much, you know, she's still there, and she's got a plate of biscuits, and that's what you would be making. I mean, that's, you know, mm-hmm. so um, Calumet, again, the baking powders are interchangeable now. There would be no consistency whatsoever in the cookbooks. Uh, but in the early, early days, this is probably something your mother's attitude probably came from her mother or even farther back where you might have, you know, experimented with different kinds of baking powder. And then when you find one that's reliable, it's like, there you go. We're sticking with this one, you know. Um, That's probably it. Yeah, because they were not interchangeable. I mean, you could not pick up a cookbook put out by Royal Baking Powder and a cookbook put out by Calumet 
and use the other baking powder to make them, the calumet would cause, and believe me, I have done all of these experiments, so you don't have to, um, <laughs> but if you use <laughs> the amount of calumet that used to be called for in a royal baking powder recipe, it will overrise, and the biscuits will, will or muffins, I think I made, you know, like chocolate cupcakes or something, they will puff up and they will be lopsided, they will look like a, you know, like a cap from the night before Christmas. One of those night night caps, <laughs> nightwear things. Oh you know, like man! Lopsided, where you know it's like it's up, but then it collapses down on one side, and you will be able to taste it, and it tastes bitter. So those will yeah. be overrisen. And if you used, you know, um, it just and, and you know, or you'll get something underrisen. It just these things just don't. They're not. They were not interchangeable. Um, and as I said, the you know, so 1995, Joy of Cooking. She stops talking about double acting, but the last Royal Cookbook was um, printed in about 1950, and then they did not come out with a new one. I think 1955 or you know 58 or so was really the last cookbook. And I'm going, we're single acting. Yeah, we're single acting, and that's better. And nobody was buying it literally um, at that point. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you've got a brand that works for you, that works for you. Oh, uh, I, I, I'm terrible. I very seldom get in and bake stuff anymore. But oh I remember. Oh my God! And I'm talking to you. Anyway? Ow. Oh my God! Oh yeah, because. Oh my God! Hey, you know I'm the queen of soup, but I I don't. Well, the other thing is I have a slight flour allergy too. Keep in mind I have a slight wheat allergy, so you know. Yeah. Well, fortunately, you know baking powder. One of the big big pluses of baking powder, uh, back in the in the 19th century was that corn was such a common grain in America, mm-hmm. unlike in the rest of the world. And yeast does nothing to corn because corn, no gluten. Yep. So you can throw that stuff in New England. They made a um, dish that was like a, a bread. It was part rye and part corn. And sometimes it was half and half, and sometimes it was two-thirds of one and a third of the other. Uh, but it was it would have been the yeast in the rye. I mean the the gluten in the rye. And rye does mm-hmm. not have a lot of gluten, and the gluten it has is weak. So uh, that's what would cause the leavening. But that was a very very dense dense bread. Um, so corn muffins, baking powder, and and corn go together mm-hmm. very well. So uh, and there's a classic in New England that's called a thirded bread, which they, uh, Boston brown bread, which is a third corn, oh, a third yeah. rye, and a third wheat with a little molasses and some raisins in it uh, or maple syrup or something, uh, which is a very wholesome, delicious muffin uh, and I think baking soda, mm-hmm. baking powder. But, um, well, I'm so sorry about your, your wheat allergy. That's uh, it's in a lot mm-hmm. of things and a lot of, lot of good things. I suppose then you have to console yourself with just ice cream then, Becky, or... Um, no, <laughs> I, I occasionally eat it. I mean, I just try to keep it, I try to keep it, you know, one serving of something with wheat in it a day. 
Mm. If that makes any sense. I mean, you know, I'm allergic to mm-hmm. cats and Bermuda grass and oak and maple and I can't remember what else. I mean, so I, I yeah, I, I do my best to be responsible about it so I just don't snot the world. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. Becky, we should have I should have I should have planned to have uh Linda here on Valentine's because she has been featured on shows about chocolate and aphrodisiacs. So, you know, she's Oh, damn. Oh, the woman knows nothing. she knows everything. There is nothing no, better no, than no. dark chocolate, very very dark chocolate with sea salt. There is nothing better. Hmm. Oh, I'm glad no. that works for you. That's my you favorite about candy thing. Candy or candy or baked goods? What do you? Or bark. Things leavened with baking chocolate powder? bark or candy. candy. Yeah, d- bark. The, you know, uh, mm. they they literally n- not sweet, salt, that savory bark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I well, when I say I like cacao, I like cacao, but mm-hmm. I I like it <laughs> just about as straight as you can get it. Wow. Well, you know, a lot of recipes, you know, well, some recipes will call for baking powder and baking soda. And you look at them and you go, isn't there baking soda already in baking powder? Yes, there is. But Good question. If you've, if you've got something that's high in acid, like mm-hmm. chocolate, or the other one is buttermilk, mm-hmm. then you're going to use baking soda. You might use baking powder and baking soda. Um, you know, give it just a little extra boost, sometimes it's baking soda, but that's why you might see both of those things in the same recipe. It's because you've got something acidic in it. Citrus as well, so, I think. Yeah, yeah. especially buttermilk. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. buttermilk and chocolate or chocolate buttermilk cake. <laughs> there you go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, throw throw a little coffee in there too. Uh, All right. <laughs> okay. Let me just say one more time, if you're listening live and you want to talk to Linda Civitello here with Madam Perry Salon, who I am thrilled to have her here in the Genie Bottle, the number is 646-716-9922, 646-716-9922. And um, Linda's book, we're talking about wars, the uh, cutthroat history of – uh, <laughs> Baking powder wars. Cut- We've only got a few more. Go ahead, cutthroat. Say it. Say it, girl. What baking powder wars? The cutthroat food fight that revolutionized <laughs> cooking. <laughs> it's true. It, it's that's true. it. True. And it speaking did. of cutthroat, um, and yes, you can still call. We got about five more minutes of Linda here. Uh, Linda, to get into the cutthroat part, I'm going to ask you just to pick any one of these you want to talk about for the next couple of minutes. And two, while I've got uh, also uh, Peter and Becky here, um, there's the Jesse James, the Mafia, the Clan. Um, uh, mafia? What else? No, I don't think so. No, Ma- no I mean, mafia? mafia. Did I just make Let's that? Let's talk about the Clan. Mm, okay. Um, and the Clabber Well, girl. the Clan. Clan in the company that created Clever Girl was German Catholic immigrants, mm. and this oh. was a problem. And um, 
Well, first World War One, uh, World War One was a huge problem. Most of the cities in the United States called Berlin or other names of German cities disappeared. German disappeared from schools, German language newspapers. Uh, people stopped speaking German, um, and I mean, huge, huge. You know, we had Liberty Cabbage instead of Sauerkraut and Liberty Dog. There was already a tremendous oh, backlash. Liberty steak well, instead of hamburger. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, well, I don't know if you remember when during the Iraq War, France objected to, yes. to us. And remember, everybody was eating freedom fries. They're not French fries. Yeah. They're freedom fries. So food reflects what is going on politically, racially, and, you know, all kinds of other things. If it's in the culture, it's going to be in food. And anyway, so coming off of World War One and all of this, tremendous anti-German sentiment, you had the rise of the Klan in the 1920s, and they were very powerful in Indiana, in Oregon, um, you know, not confined to the South by any means, and the, you know, they were anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish, you know, anti-black, of course, anti, you know, any people of color, anti-immigrants, and here's Clabber Girl, which, you know, the whole family, German Catholics, and they kept bringing relatives over and friends, you know, people over, and they would start them working in the motor pool or the stables before they had cars and until these people got assimilated and then, you know, could work their way up in the company. And the family was named Holman, and they were very prominent in Terre Haute, Indiana, and they were philanthropists. They donated tremendous amounts of time and money and energy into the community, but the the Klan had a huge march, um, I think it was April 24th, 1923, right down the main street, right in front of the store, in front of the, you know, this five-story, five or six-story store um, and warehouse and place where the, the baking powder was manufactured down to the, the courthouse at the river. And, I mean, there were deaths. Um, there, was, there were arson fires. I mean, the, this Klan and, and Americans who were against the Klan um, got violent, and women were involved in this. And um, any business that was not what the Klan called 100 percenters, which was white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, was at risk. So, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, they weathered this, the Clabber, Clabber Girl and the, the Holman family, and that building is still there. It's now the Clabber Girl Museum, and there is a kitchen and, um, you know, where I think believe they have cooking classes, and you can go in and get some very wonderful baking powder <laughs> biscuits if you're ever in Terre Haute. So, uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other wow. thing, you know, business, you know, you look at government regulation and it's not enough. you got, like, how am I going to market this product? I have this great product. Who, you know, who's the market? Who's the, how, you know, what's it going to cost me to get a campaign? What do I use as a logo or a meme or a slogan? And, you know, what is the government going to tell me I can do? Where am I getting my ingredients, my supplies? You know, is the weather going to interrupt my you know, shipping this out or, you know, receiving goods. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And it's like, I don't have enough problems. Here comes the clan. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So, eh, you know, all kinds of variables in doing business. So, no kidding. Yeah. Well, sadly, our time is up, and I this is just flown. I don't know about you, Linda, but this has flown by for me, and it's uh, yes. been very exciting to thank have you. you here. Thank you. So, folks, well, we've been you. listening. Oh, it's, listen, this is a del- I am just so thrilled to have you here because this book is just like I would read a chapter and have to go back and read it again. But uh, thanks to uh, oh, Carrie thank Dunn, you. Peter G., and Becky Kyle for joining us here tonight. And uh, remember, the title nice. is Baking Powder Wars, The Cutthroat Fight That Revolutionized Cooking by Linda Civitello. You can get it from Amazon. Go to your favorite bookstore. If they don't have it, ask them to order it for you and tell them to get two or three more because somebody else is going to want this that you know as well. And this is – thank you so much. You know who you need to have market this? You know where this needs to be sold? Bed Bath & Beyond and oh. uh, William Sonoma. Hmm. Ah, the okay. cooking stores. Well, you, I mean, seriously, why not? Well, hmm. she's got the University of um, Illinois Press behind her, so I think they should be able to handle that. I hope so. Good luck, Linda. Right. Right. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.